Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we do come before you this morning as those who are dependent fully on your grace. God, I praise you that there are many among us this morning who have come to find refuge in the cross. We've experienced the cleansing that comes by your grace through the blood of your Son. And Lord, we come today not only as those who have received grace, but as those who are in need of grace now and grace tomorrow. We ask, Lord, for the grace to hear and understand your word. I ask for the grace to communicate it with power, with clarity, conviction. And Lord, I pray that you would communicate to us the grace that is needed to change and to grow and to become fully conformed into the image of your son, Jesus Christ. So Lord, we thank you for your grace and we ask for more of it. And we ask in the name of Jesus, amen. All right, the young children can be dismissed and I want to invite the rest of you to turn in your Bibles this morning to Jonah chapter three. If you are a student of history, then you will know that there have been several unique moments where entire regions and even nations have experienced a wave of spiritual renewal. We often refer to these as revivals. We could just mention a few of them. We don't have time to tell all of the stories, but many of you are familiar with the Protestant Reformation in Europe, or perhaps the Great Awakening in the U.S. colonies, perhaps the Welsh Revival, And there's many others as well. But today we want to go further back in history to a spiritual awakening that in some ways was more impressive even than any of those revivals. Jonah chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. There are some people who think today that revival is something that we can stir up if only we can just push the right buttons. 
If only we can figure out exactly the right way to say things. If we can get the right speakers, maybe a celebrity that has lots of you know, cultural weight. If we could maybe plan the right events and just harness the power of marketing and music, maybe we can make this happen. Then there's maybe others, perhaps this describes more of, of us in this room, who look around us at our society and we think, you know what, things are just too far gone. Our society is beyond reach. The gospel could never penetrate and bring widespread transformation here. One of these extremes is overconfident in our own ability to think that we can actually make something like this happen. But the other is sadly underconfident in the power of God. Jonah chapter 3 pushes back against both of these attitudes. And it's really not a revival. It's more of a revival because there was no gospel there before this. But it's an evangelistic explosion that sweeps through the city like wildfire. And as we walk through this account, what I want to do this morning is focus on four important insights as to how God works. There's many different angles we could take, many different themes and lessons we could draw out, but I want to focus on what God is doing in Jonah chapter 3. How does God work? Because true revival can happen. It can, and it does. But it only happens when God moves, when God works in and through and among his people. The first insight is found in verses 1 through 2, and that's this. God works through ordinary people. He works through ordinary people. As we consider the messenger in Jonah chapter 3, our attention is drawn once again to Jonah. The word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. And we see in verse 4 that Jonah preached. He called out the words that God had given him. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And God accomplished this great work in part through his servant Jonah. Now Jonah was no rock star. He was from a little town called Gath-Heper. It was a town near Nazareth in the region of Galilee. And if you want to, to think about how... how um, non-extraordinary Jonah was. In the New Testament, people grumbled that nothing good came out of Nazareth and there were no prophets from Galilee. They didn't even count Jonah as a prophet. He was not anything special. And Jonah was not someone they were proud of. Jonah was infamous for his disobedience. Think about it. He was famous for failure. And if you've been paying attention, then you'll notice that verses 1 and 2 sound very, very familiar. It says, the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. If you go back to chapter 1, this is almost a word-for-word echo of how this book began. When God first told him to go and to preach. But Jonah had run. He had rebelled. We saw over the last few weeks how God did not leave Jonah and abandon him to his disobedience. He pursued him. And in the midst of a divinely sent storm on the sea, Jonah was hurled overboard to what seemed to be a certain death. And in those dark depths of the ocean, Jonah reached the end of his rope. He reached the breaking point. We talked about that last week in chapter 2, how Jonah called out for mercy. And he was swallowed by a great fish. And God didn't send the fish to digest him, but to deliver him to safety. For three days and three nights, he's carried in the belly of the fish, back the direction he had came as he was running away from the presence of the Lord. And then at the end of 
chapter two, uh, two, we see that the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah up. It vomited him out on the dry land. So we've come full circle. And now in chapter three, Jonah is right back where he started. And the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. But this time, Jonah is a changed man. Or I should say he's a changing man. He's not who he was at the beginning of this book. He's experienced the severe but gracious discipline of the Lord. And his rebellious spirit has been broken. His will has been submitted to God. He has vowed to obey there at the end of his prayer in chapter 2. Jonah had learned from his experience. And so he is now a sobered servant, a disciplined disciple. And now, amazingly, think about this. God gives him a second chance. He gives him a second chance. He's not done with Jonah. Even though Jonah sinned, even though Jonah rebelled, even though Jonah still has issues in his heart that have not yet been worked out, God wants to use Jonah. And friends, this is grace. It's grace. It tells us something about God, that he uses ordinary people, ordinary people who have regrets, ordinary people who have failed, ordinary people who are weak and who have sinned and fallen. God is able to restore and redeem and renew them and then use them to accomplish his will. In the New Testament, the Apostle Peter carried forever the regret of having denied Christ. And yet, God used him to establish the church. In the New Testament, we find a young man named John Mark who quits as a missionary as he's traveling with Paul, but later becomes quite useful and and pens the gospel of Mark in the New Testament. In the New Testament, we find a man named Paul who called himself the chief of sinners. But all of these men were greatly used by God, and so was Jonah. Jonah is ordinary in the sense that he has a history of failure. And he's also ordinary in the sense that, like you and me, he's not yet perfect. It's not that Jonah somehow fixed everything that was wrong in his life and got his act totally put together, and now he can be useful to God. No, as we'll see next week, he still has some issues in his heart that are not yet fully untangled. But God decides to use this man to preach his message and bring about a great salvation in Nineveh. God uses ordinary people. As we saw in verse 9 of chapter 2, salvation belongs to the Lord. And he can use whatever instrument he chooses to bring it about. In fact, you could argue that it was actually Jonah's failures that made him more suited to be used by God. Because Jonah had been humbled And guess what? God uses humble people. Jonah had become convinced of his weakness and his need for mercy as he sank in the sea. And guess what? God uses those who are fully dependent on him. Jonah had become convinced that God judges sin and that salvation belongs to the Lord. He still had the smell of fish and the stain of stomach acid to prove it. That he had learned that lesson. And God uses those who sincerely believe the message that they proclaim. Jonah was ordinary, weak, and needy, just like you and me. But by God's grace, his will had been submitted to God. And he was dependent now on God's mercy. And so he is now more fit than ever to be used by God to preach this message in Nineveh. I love what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4.7. He says, we have this treasure 
referring to the gospel message and, and this gift of proclaiming God's truth. He says, we have this treasure in jars of clay. Nothing special, nothing fancy, something ordinary and breakable and cheap and common. He says, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. How could such a great revival come about through a man like Jonah? It's because God is the one who is at work, and he uses ordinary people. God delights to show grace to one, to show grace to one like a Jonah or a Peter or a Paul, and then through that one extend his grace to many. That's how God always works, and that's, friends, what God wants to do in your life. The grace that you have experienced, the grace we've sung about this morning, is not meant to terminate in your own heart. It's meant to overflow to others. It's meant to be received by you and then flow through you and extend out to other people who need that same grace. So let me ask you, do you believe that God can use you? Whether you're 12 or 92, well, God can. He delights to use the weak and the ordinary and the imperfect so that when great things are accomplished, guess who gets all the glory? He does. He does. When we consider the messenger here in Jonah 3, we discover that God works through ordinary people. But there's a second insight that comes when we consider not just the messenger, but the message itself. And that's this, that God works not just through ordinary people, but God secondly works through his word. God works through his word. God told Jonah some very clear instructions. He is to say exactly what God tells him. He says this in verse 2. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, notice this, the message that I shall tell you. Jonah is to say what God tells him, nothing more and nothing less. He's not to say what he wants to say. He's not just venting and getting something off his chest. He's not to say what they want to hear. He's not just trying to gather a crowd and win their popularity. No, Jonah is called to faithfully deliver the words that God gives him. He's not to be clever or profound, but simple, clear, direct, and honest. This is to be the mark of all who herald God's word. As Paul tells the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, verse 27, he tells them this. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. In 2 Corinthians 2.17, Paul says, We are not like so many, peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Later on in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2, Paul says, We have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. This is how faithful gospel ministry looks. The truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. Everything that God has said, nothing less. Not adding, not tampering, not trying to cook it and present it just right so that it's the most acceptable. It's a simple, clear, full-hearted, full-throated presentation of God's word. And that's what God uses You'll notice here the message in Jonah 3 is itself very short. What did Jonah preach? What's this powerful sermon that led to the conversion of an entire city? Because we should probably copy this down and preach it, right, if it's that good. 
could plagiarize this. Verse 4, Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, here's the sermon, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. It's a pretty short sermon. There's no illustrations, there's no points, no outline. It's a simple silver bullet that struck straight to the heart of these people. And I'll admit, this is probably a summary of what Jonah preached. I'm sure he said a little bit more than this. But this captures the essence of his message. This was the thrust of what he proclaimed to these people. I was reminded this week of a quote from Charles Spurgeon, the English preacher, who wrote, It is better to preach five words of God's word than five million words of man's wisdom. I think we see a great example of that here in Jonah. The message itself is simply an announcement of judgment. Forty days and the city will be overthrown. This word for overthrown has the idea of being turned upside down. It's the same word that Genesis 19 used to describe what God did to Sodom and Gomorrah. So it's not just you know, political upheaval. It's not just you know, social chaos. It's utter, complete destruction. The message that God has for the world is always, first of all, bad news. It's always, first of all, a warning of judgment, that sin leads to devastation and destruction. And this message is usually not very popular in the world. And unfortunately, it's even not popular among Christians. But it is, nonetheless, the essential truth that must be proclaimed. Jesus Christ himself warned us of the wrath to come. He taught about a coming judgment in which the sheep and the goats will be separated. In Matthew 25, 46, he summarizes and says, These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Earlier, he describes this eternal punishment as the eternal fire that's been prepared for the devil and his angels. This might sound harsh to some, to talk about hell to talk about the judgment of God, to talk about his wrath, his righteous anger, and the utter destruction that will come upon those who persist in their rebellion and unbelief. But friends, it is actually God's grace to warn us of this judgment and to give us time, to give us time to respond accordingly. Think about Nineveh. They were given 40 days. Did you know Sodom and Gomorrah got no such warning? They got no such time to, to change their ways and to rend their hearts and to repent before God. But Nineveh was given 40 days to hear this message, to consider the implications, and to respond to the God who was warning them. 40 days. This number 40 in Scripture is often associated with a time of testing. And they were being tested. What would their response to this message be? 40 days implies that there is hope for them. There's a warning of judgment, but the 40 days implies that there's an opportunity for them to repent and to escape the judgment that is heading their way. And this is at the heart of the gospel message. We warn people of the wrath to come, but then we offer them the grace of God. We invite them to come and receive the salvation that Jesus Christ has purchased for us with his blood. You see, there is devastating bad news, but there is also the most wonderful news the best news, the good news of the gospel, that Jesus came to save sinners, to seek and save the lost, not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. This is what Jonah was preaching, a warning of wrath, 
but wrapped up within this warning is also an offer of grace. How could such a blunt and simple message bring such a massive response from the residents of this city? It's because God works through his word. It was the word, not Jonah, that brought about this great response. God always works through his word, and there is power in the message itself. Jeremiah 23, verse 29, God asks a powerful rhetorical question. Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? That's how God thinks about Scripture. But many Christians today do not. We don't think it's powerful enough. We don't think it will have the intended effect that we desire to see. And that's why too often people do not approach Scripture as absolutely sufficient Hebrews 4.12 says, The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Isaiah 55.10, God declares, For as the rain and snow come down from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. The testimony of Scripture is clear. God himself tells us, and history bears it out, that God works through his word. That's why we must emphasize it. That's why we must proclaim it fully and completely without apology without editing the message, thinking that we know best what the world should hear. We need to obediently proclaim God's word and confidently trust that it is powerful, it is sufficient, and that it's not about the messenger. It's not about you, it's not about me. The power is in the message itself. The evangelist George Whitfield once said, Other men may preach the gospel better than I, but no man can preach a better gospel. The power is in the message. It's in the message. To neglect God's word or to distort it in any way, if we do that, is to detach ourselves from the very power of God. Through the word, God convicts of sin. God warns of judgment and he offers grace. It is God's word that has the power to change hearts, to change families, to change churches, to change cities, to change cultures and nations. The word of God is powerful and sufficient, and we will show whether or not we actually believe this by what we do with the word, whether we neglect it or whether we center our lives and our ministries around it. God uses ordinary people, and he works through his word. There's a third insight that comes from the reaction of Jonah's audience. We've considered the the messenger and then the message, but what about the recipients of this message? Well, in verses 5 and then 6 through 9, we find that God's work produces true repentance. It produces true repentance. We've talked a lot about repentance over the last few weeks, so we won't go into as much detail here as we could. But I want you to notice that the response by the pagan citizens of Nineveh, as, this, as repentance and faith sweeps through, this is truly astounding. I don't know if we can really get our minds around how significant this is. It's a bigger miracle even than the storm that God sends. 
It's a bigger miracle even than the fish that swallows Jonah and then spits him out three days later. A whole city responding with one mind and one heart to the word of God as it is declared through his messenger. The response is one of faith and repentance. Faith and repentance, the response that God's word, God's gospel demands. We see their faith in verse 5. The people of Nineveh believed God. They believed God. Yes, Jonah was the one speaking, but God was the one whose voice they heard. And they recognized in Jonah's word that this was no ordinary foreigner with a fish story. He was speaking to them the very word of God. It was God's judgment they were facing. It was God's prophet who was speaking. It was God's words they were hearing. And it was God's mercy that they needed. And they believed God. They believed God. Everyone who hears God's word is faced with this choice to believe it or to not. That includes everyone in the room this morning. God's word presents to us a truth claim. A truth claim. Not just ideas, not just theories, not just advice or interesting stories, not just one way to do things or one set of beliefs that works for some people. God's word brings a comprehensive claim to truth. And you will either believe it or you will reject it. Those are the only two options. And apart from believing God's word, there will be no experience of salvation. We must believe. John chapter 3, we're all familiar with John 3 verse 16. But I think there's a powerful contrast we find just a few words later. In John chapter 3 Verse 18, Jesus says, Whoever believes in him, referring to himself, the Son of God, is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Why? Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Faith, believing God, is essential. There's no salvation apart from it. And not only did these people believe that what Jonah was saying was true, But their belief was paired with repentance. We see this in verse 5. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. This might sound a little strange to our ears, but this response is really a beautiful outward expression of what was going on in their hearts. And it's an example of how sinners must respond to the conviction of the Holy Spirit when God brings his word to bear on our guilty conscience. This repentance is really fleshed out in the reaction of the king in verses 6 through 9. He goes from sitting on the throne to sitting in the dust, from wearing royal robes to wearing sackcloth. He goes from feasting to fasting, from leading his people in violence and wickedness to proclaiming that everyone is to turn from their sin and call out to Yahweh for mercy. Each of these elements demonstrates a heart of true repentance, a broken spirit, grief over sin, turning from their sin to God. Their fasting shows that they are desperate. They do indeed believe this message, that judgment is coming, and they now recognize that what they need even more than food or drink is God's mercy. So they set food and drink aside and call out to God to show mercy. To wear sackcloth and ashes is a deep expression of mourning and grief, the kind of thing they would do when there was terrible tragedies or funerals, and they're grieving their sin. Isaiah 51, 17 tells us, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, 
A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. This is the grief that they were expressing by wearing sackcloth and ashes. This rough, this rough material that was uncomfortable and, and, and a sign of, of mourning. And the king tells everyone, he puts this proclamation out, that they should turn from their wicked ways. What Jonah had done in submitting his will to God, ceasing to run, ceasing his rebellion, and instead vowing to obey, this is what they must now do as well. The submission of our wills to God is a key element of true repentance. And then finally, we see there's this humble hope for mercy. Look at the words of the king. In verse 9, he says, Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. I think there's something unique that we find in their repentance that is too often lacking today. And that is that there was no presumption that God was obligated to spare them. God may turn. He's not saying that he's not sure if God is good or that he's not sure if God can. He's saying God doesn't owe us anything. But let's repent and call out for mercy. That's our only hope. And perhaps he may. But there's no presumption, not a single ounce. There's no, there's no bit of, of entitlement in their prayer of for, for forgiveness. And there's no protest if God says, I appreciate that, but justice is still going to fall. They know they are guilty. And there's no protest about God's justice. They're not saying, God, why are you doing this? God, why didn't you give us more time? God, how come you haven't sent more prophets before Jonah? Why did you wait till now? There is no excuses. Just a small but real seed of faith. God may perhaps turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Jonah stood before them as a living sign, both of God's judgment and God's mercy. He'd experienced God's chastening power at sea and in the fish. But he'd also experienced God's salvation and God's mercy, and now he's preaching that message to them. And as he spoke, God's word enlightened them to the reality of their sinfulness, enlightened them to God's impending justice. God's word brought deep conviction, but God's word had also offered them hope. It had drawn forth faith and produced in them a radical repentance. This is what God had done. And it's truly a miracle of sovereign grace. It's a work of God. There's no other explanation. It's a work of God. And really, it's the same miracle that has taken place in the heart of every true believer who's here today. God's word, bringing about this kind of response of faith and repentance, a miracle of grace. God uses ordinary people. He works through his word, and his work brings about this response of faith and repentance. And then finally, as we've considered the messenger, the message, the recipients of the message, what about the one who sent this message? What about God? What do we discover as we consider God? A fourth insight is that God's work magnifies his mercy. God's work magnifies his mercy. Verse 10, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. There's a big crisis in this chapter that judgment is looming over this city, and the resolution to this crisis comes in verse 10. 
God made the decision not to send judgment at the end of this 40 days. And what this means is that these people have experienced a divine rescue. It means that there is now safety for these multitudes of people and even their livestock. It means life for them instead of death. Instead of the city being turned over, the city's been turned around. The crisis has been averted and God's mercy has been displayed. Why? How? What led to this change? Well, God had sent Jonah. God had commissioned the message. And God had brought about this response out of their hearts. So ultimately, it's not about Jonah being a good preacher. It's not even about the resolve of the people who repented. It's about the God who orchestrated the whole thing to magnify his mercy. So that people could see that he is a God who is gracious and patient and slow to anger. God magnifies his mercy. He delights to give salvation. We mentioned last week, salvation belongs to the Lord. Chapter 2, verse 9. That's the theological center of this whole book. And it means two things. That God is able to save, but also that God desires to save. He is merciful and compassionate. And he delights to display his, his compassion, to magnify his mercy, so that people see that this is what he's like. And how would we know that God is like this? Unless he told us and he showed us. And that's exactly what God has done. He has told us that salvation belongs to the Lord and he has shown us in, in showing compassion and mercy on these people. He has magnified his mercy. And that's what the salvation of every sinner does. That is why forever in heaven we will sing, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive glory and wisdom and honor and power. We will worship the one who showed us mercy. That's what we'll do in heaven forever. And it pleases God greatly. It brings him great glory and joy to display and magnify his mercy, to bring about salvation for sinners so that their joy and gratitude overflows in an eternal sacrifice of praise to him. God's work magnifies his mercy. There is one thing, though, that we do need to clarify because this little verse... Jonah 3, verse 10, along with a few other places in Scripture, often raises some big questions. Does God relenting, as the ESV puts it, some of you might have the King James Version, says God repented. That raises some big questions. Does God change his mind? Does this mean that he was mistaken or that he was lying or that he was incorrect somehow when he had said in 40 days Nineveh will be destroyed? Does this mean that God's will, God's plans, God's purposes can be changed? It's a big question, a question of theological import. The short answer is no, that's not what this means. But to explain that, there's two reasons why that's not what this text is teaching us, that God changes his mind or that his will changes throughout time. A couple different reasons for that. The first is that scripture often uses the language of human experience to describe God. Scripture sometimes speaks of God's hand or God's right arm, as if he has a body. But the scripture tells us God is spirit. He doesn't have a literal hand with five fingers and fingernails and tendons and joints. We, we call this, the big, the big word for this theologically is an anthropomorphism. It's the human form used descriptively to describe something that God is doing, using human language to help us understand what God is like and what God does. 
So that happens with God when we talk about God's hand or his right arm or his eye. But the same thing is also used to describe God's emotions and his will. We call this not an anthropomorphism, the form, but anthropopathism, referring to God's emotions. Scripture teaches us that God does not change. Numbers 23.19 says, God is not man, that he should lie, or a son of man, that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? That's very clear. It's very clear. 1 Samuel 15.29 tells us, And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Old Testament scholar Charles Feinberg comments, When the scriptures speak of God repenting, or relenting as the ESV has it, it is the language of appearance, the language of accommodation from the viewpoint of man. From our perspective, that's what it looks like. It looks like God has changed his mind. But that does not mean that God is susceptible to change the way you and I are. We are like him in some ways, but he is not like us in that way. So that's one reason why I think the answer is no. God does not change. God is not changing his mind. He did not make a mistake. He he did not make an empty threat that he didn't mean. But the second reason why I believe this is the answer is that God's relenting of wrath in Nineveh is in keeping with his purposes from the beginning. The fact that his actions towards them changed says not that God has changed, but that they have changed. Do you see the difference? It's not that God is no longer planning to judge sin. It's that they're no longer engaged in open, active sin that deserves such judgment. God's judgment towards sin is consistent. It is unchanging. And his mercy on the penitent is also consistent and unchanging. And what's happened is that they jumped sides. And so now they will experience his mercy instead of his wrath. In Jeremiah 18.7, we see that this is how God always operates. And this has been his purpose from the beginning. Jeremiah 18.7, God says, If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it. Sounds like the warning to Nineveh, doesn't it? God says, if in any time I declare that, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will plant and build it up, and if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I had intended to do to it. This is how God always operates. So God is not acting out of character or changing his mind when he relents of the disaster that he had warned Nineveh about. And Jonah himself knows this. Jonah gets it, and as we'll see next week, it's one of the reasons he didn't want to go to Nineveh because he knew that God was like this. He knew that God would probably forgive them, and he wanted to see them burn. So Jonah understood exactly what God was like. You see, God's judgment was conditional Upon their conduct. And when the conduct changed, so also did their immediate future. God always judges sin, and God always shows mercy to the penitent. Our repentance, therefore, does not change God. Let me underline that. Our repentance does not change God. Rather, it shows that we have changed. We have, in a sense, stepped off of the train tracks to avoid the judgment of God that was barreling towards us. And we stepped onto a different set of tracks. 
going the opposite direction with God's grace now barreling towards us. But keep in mind, those two trains are always running and they're always on schedule. We simply have been invited to step off of one and onto the other. The fact that God turned from his previous intent to send judgment is not meant to confuse us. This is the bottom line. It's not meant to confuse us. It's meant to comfort us. It's meant to comfort us, to invite us to repent, knowing that God delights to show mercy. This is the point. His pursuit of Jonah, his resolve to send a word of warning to Nineveh shows his desire to forgive them, his desire to show mercy. The whole story is meant to display his compassion and his eagerness to forgive. Salvation belongs to the Lord. He desires to save, and he will save. He is able to save. Jonah chapter 3 shows us a true and genuine work of God on a massive scale. And it's amazing. God uses ordinary people. He works through his word. He brings about genuine repentance. And in all of this, he magnifies his mercy towards sinners like us. This is the anatomy of a revival. It's a true work of God. Each one of these elements is essential. So if you're here this morning and you don't know the Lord, if you're not a believer today, I want to invite you to respond to God's warning of judgment, but also his invitation to experience grace. The response that God desires from you is no different than the response of the Ninevites, to believe what God has said, to repent from your sin, trusting that God is able to show you mercy. Cast yourself on his mercy today and receive the forgiveness of your sins. Experience the rescue from judgment Experience the free gift of eternal life that only God can give. It's only through Christ that you can experience rescue and redemption and salvation. If you do not believe the gospel, if you do not trust in the work of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, if you do not repent from your sin, then you are standing in a spot that has been marked with a bullseye, a place where God's wrath is destined to fall. There is judgment coming, and you will experience it, maybe in less than 40 days, maybe in more, I don't know. But right now, God has graciously given you time to hear his word and to respond with faith and repentance. Will you harden your heart to the offer of the gospel, or will you respond like these people and believe? It's our heart, it's our desire. There's people praying for you right now as I'm preaching that you would receive the gift of eternal life, that you would trust in the gospel and believe and be saved. If you're a believer here this morning, I think this chapter is very encouraging and instructive to us. Because God uses ordinary people, that means that you and I must offer ourselves to, to God as his servants. He has people he wants to save today. He wants to magnify his mercy today, and he wants to use you to do it. Will you take the gospel on your lips? Will you declare God's truth without editing it or removing the parts that you fear might be offensive or ineffective? Will you proclaim it with boldness and with clarity and with simplicity, without tampering, without peddling, without salesmanship, without embarrassment, and turn the word of God loose into a world that is ripe 
There's a great harvest out there, but the laborers are few. Will you join the task force? God uses ordinary people. Offer yourself to him to be his servant. Because God uses his word, we need to trust in the sufficiency and power of scripture. Don't buy into the latest trends. It's not about psychology. It's not about how persuasive we can be in our tactics. It's about understanding and communicating the word. So pour yourself into this book. You need to know it. You need to understand it. You need to be confident in it and then simply declare it. This is what God is calling us to do, to be servants, to be tools, instruments in his hands that he can use to magnify his mercy in this world. Brothers and sisters, finally, will you thank God for doing this miracle of mercy in your heart? I'm grateful today that God has brought about this act of mercy in my life because I'm someone who needs second chances. I'm a sinner like Jonah and like you, and I'm dependent on God's grace and mercy. And I'm so thankful that God hasn't written me off, that he hasn't given up on me. Aren't you thankful he hasn't given up on you? We should thank him for that today. We should thank him for bringing about faith and repentance in our hearts. Not many of us were wise or noble, but God chose the foolish and the weak and the small to display his glory and his power. We cannot take any credit for our own faith and our our eternal life. It's a gift of God. It's a gift of grace. We should thank him for it. And we should pray that God would do it again, that he would do it again in the hearts of those who still don't know him. And magnify his mercy. May God's mercy be magnified among those who know him and to those who are still far off. That's what we want. That's what we want to see here. That's what we want to see happen through us in this community. So that in all things God would receive the glory that is due to his name. So that people would see and that they would know by experience that salvation belongs to the Lord. Father, as we read your word, we are struck at how you use weak and sinful people like us, how you use your word, how you give second chances and you extend your mercy to show us who you are. Lord, you deserve worship and glory for your great work of salvation throughout history and in this church and in our lives individually. So God, we praise you and thank you for being so merciful to us. And Lord, for those among us this morning who are not resting in your mercy who are not trusting in your gospel, but instead are trusting in their own good works, trusting in their own efforts, who are perhaps thinking that this gospel thing is maybe good for some people, but they don't need it. I pray that today you would bring them face to face with the reality of the judgment that is to come. You tell us that it is appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. God, if there's people here today who aren't ready to die and face you, Awaken them to this reality. Wake them up so that they become just as desperate as the Ninevites to experience your mercy. Bring them to the breaking point. I pray that they would believe that salvation belongs to you. That there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we can be saved. It's only Jesus. It's only through his death and resurrection. It's only by the shedding of his blood that we can be saved. He is the way and the truth and the life, and no one can come to you except through him. God, awaken sinners today to their need and draw forth faith and repentance so that they might experience your mercy. God, give us courage 
and boldness to declare your word to the lost. I pray that you would use this church to herald forth your gospel, that we would do it not only here on Sunday, but in our homes throughout the week, in our places of work, in our schools, in our neighborhoods, among those who do not yet know you. God, use us to scatter the seed of the gospel so that your mercy and glory can be magnified for all eternity. We pray for your help in this, for your ongoing work of grace, and we pray for it in Jesus' name. Amen.